kids in this episode, as I do in every episode, I end up talking about 50 different things. There's an echo in here, isn't there? Um, it's, um, my apologies for that. I'm in Box Hill Hospital, and if you've, ever had a ba- if you've ever had a baby in the old days in Box Hill Hospital, I'm in the tea room of my area. It's not my area, I'm just a consultant here. And the tea room used to be the maternity ward. So it still looks and feels like a maternity ward. Uh, so if you had a baby in Box Hill Hospital, up until who knows when, maybe five, ten years ago, I am standing in the main maternity ward, which is now a tea room. All right, now, in the current, in the coming episode, um, I talk about 50 different things. Just brainstorm, stream of consciousness, you know, because that's my style. Uh, But I end up talking about one thing that interested me uh, in particular, uh, terra nullius, the idea of terra nullius, um, owned by nobody. Uh, and um, as always, I don't talk about these things in a political way. So if you uh, completely agree with the British that this land was owned no- by nobody, then there is plenty in this episode to encourage you in that idea. Not that you, you know, not that I'm likely to discourage you in that idea. But if you think that's absolutely um, a, tra- a travesty, you know, of justice to even think like that, or even mention that, or even to speak like that, there's plenty in this episode uh, that will encourage you in that idea. Not that you need my encouragement. You know, I'm irrelevant. Okay, so. Um, As always, uh, you know, if I've done this podcast right, if I'm doing this episode right, I uh, will be hated by all sides. And if I'm hated by all sides, I've done my job well. All right? So, if you put me on your little Facebook thing and smash me as a a damned progressive, you know, um, then, uh, you know, I'll... I've done the right thing. I've done a good job. And if you smash me as a fascist, a fascist I've equally done a good job. Um, all right then, now, uh, Terra Nullius. I end up talking about that. And, uh, I th- you know, my, uh, my s- final um, question runs along the, you know, at the end of the episode, runs along the lines of something like, um, did the British not so much, uh, were were they not uh, declaring the indigenous population as flora, to be flora and fauna, as, you know, uh, I hear a lot of, well, progressives say, uh, teachers, university lecturers, and activists, uh, that is progressive activists, you know, there are what you might call conservative activists too. Activists aren't all progressive, my goodness, there's some conservative activists, in fact, just as many as there are progressive activists. Right. Ah. <sighs> 
would you say that that uh, the British this was not a declaration that the indigenous people were flora and fauna but that possibly it had that effect anyway you know just because you don't intend for something to be something doesn't mean that it doesn't end up something. Did I put too many double negatives in that? But you know what I mean, right? And case in point, in a previous episode, I wondered whether it was the case that the founding fathers of Australia, we don't have founding mothers back then, the founding fathers, when, you know, the very first policy they put in place was the white Australia policy. Now we're talking different time frames, you know, Terra Nullius was a long way, a long time before Australia came about. Australia came back, you know, came about in 1901, you know, that's when Australia started. It's a fairly young country, um, Australia, the Australia as defined in the constitution, not the Australia as in the geography or the indigenous people. I'm talking about the uh, nation state Australia is young okay we need to perhaps amend the constitution at some time sometime possibly to reflect the fact that um, the two cultures indigenous australia and uh, european australia are trying to get it together at this point in time in history especially since 1967 trying to get it together and make uh, one um, entity out of two you know, because prior to 1967, you'd have to say there was two entities, Indigenous Australia and European Australia. And uh, since then, I think we're trying to create one. Um, if I was an Indigenous person, I'd want to keep it two. I wouldn't want the vote. I mentioned that in previous episodes. I would not want to be part of Australia, you know, European Australia, as defined in the Constitution. But that's just because of a rebel by nature, um, I would, you know, want to keep my original nation, whatever that was, you know, um, around Australia, you know, I'm in Melbourne, so it'd be the Wurundjeri nation, you know, and I would reject the vote. I don't want civil rights, I want indigenous rights, but that's just me, that's just what, how I would be thinking, and I reckon I'd do that, I, I reckon I'd stand up and say no. You know, and you'd say, oh, "All right, well, you wouldn't enjoy any service. You wouldn't enjoy enjoy all the services offered by European Australia." And I'd say, "You know what? No. You know, I'd rather starve. You know, I'll, I'll go out and look for some kangaroos and I'll just kill them. You know, um, or I might just go down into this. I might go down to the botanical gardens and and just start." Um, not, you know, killing birds and eating them. You know, I might do that. How do you feel about that? You know, that's, I, I, would, I would end up in jail, you know, and, um, and I'd probably end up a black death in custody, you know, I really would, um, because I think I'd be a pain in the neck as an Indigenous person. It's just lucky I'm a European, Australian um, and I, I really mean all that. That sounds really radical, but I think I would be like that. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit Irish, so I think I, I would be like that. Um, okay, uh, but, you know, credit to the typical Indigenous person in Australia. They seem to 
uh, take a pretty pragmatic view, much more than I would. I'd be a lot angrier. I'd be an angry, I'd be angry. I reckon I'd be angry. Um, and I'm not trying to be an activist. I'm not trying to be an activist in saying that. I just think it's true. I think I'd be angry. But I'm not angry because I'm privileged. Luckily, I'm European, you know, and I'm privileged, and and I ain't giving it up um, because that's me too. I lack morals. All right. Now, um, the White Australia policy was a pol- the very first policy that the founding fathers of Australia got in place. They just couldn't wait. They were a bit worried about the Chinese, to tell the truth, in fact. You know, uh, you'll have to read the, um, the transcripts um, of, you know, the debates uh, that led to the White Australia policy, but that's my read of it, that they basically wanted to keep people whose cultures um, were going to ruin wages, as far as they could see, and ruin standards of living in this, uh, in this, in this European Australia, Australia that had created these founding fathers. And they thought that, um, and, uh, and I've argued quite possibly correctly, that if they had opened the floodgates, if they had opened the borders and let anybody in, especially the Chinese, um, that would have come to pass, you know, and we wouldn't have the kinds of towns and cities we have in Australia to this day. We wouldn't have... Melbourne wouldn't look like Melbourne. It would look more like what? Well, first it would have started looking like um, a typical maybe Chinese town, you know, um, with elements of um, the feel of Africa and so on, you know, if we completely open the borders and um, a, a lot of the feel of the Middle East, you know, crowded bazaars and things like that. Um, we might have had a population of 100 million really quickly, you know, and I don't think that's a wrong thing to say. You know, not too long ago, I've been studying Ethiopia, not too long ago, Ethiopia had a, nothing this is about when I was born, maybe a population of about the same as Australia is now, maybe 25 million. I think I looked it up one time. And now they've got a population of 100 million and heaps of Ethiopians have come out of Ethiopia, so they're all over the world too, so maybe they've got a population of 150 million worldwide. You know, that's what happens. And it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, it's what happens. Okay. In, uh, you know, it depends. it's a cultural thing, and I've spoken to Ethiopians, and yes, they, 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 you know, even if they're in the middle of a drought, um, they like to have as many children as possible. You know, you have ten children because you know six or seven are probably going to die. Uh, this is not at the moment. Ethiopia's going very well at the moment, thank you very much. So, but, you know, this is a while ago. Um, and I've been told by Ethiopians this, you know. Um, it's in the culture to have lots of children because six or seven might die and then three, you know, the three will support you in your old age. That sort of thinking. <sighs> Sorry, I had my coffee here. And, uh, and what? Yeah, so the White Australia policy, the founding fathers, I think, might have had it in mind that if they opened the borders, the Australia they were dreaming of, and maybe, maybe it was immoral for them to dream of that Australia, the Australia I know, actually, you know, the one, you know, like towns like Gisborne and Sunbury and suburbs like Essendon where I live, you know, and um, all that, wouldn't exist like that. They'd look different. 
And I think they didn't want that, you know. And so they brought in this thing called, which, which is what I sort of think of as a, Europea, a European Australia policy, but it was a fact that as they looked around the world, that in general, um, people with fair skin were Europeans and people with not fair skin, perhaps excluding the Japanese and some Chinese, were darker skinned. Okay, so there was a correlation, all right, between culture and skin colour. Oh, a very deadly uh, correlation, as it turned out. And um, it becomes impossible. Um, uh, the, the uh, you know, if people are being what you might call racist or culturalist, um, it becomes impossible to separate the two. Okay, so they called it the white Australia policy because they, you know, they figured white people, as they called them, fair-skinned people, Europeans, um, had a certain way of life. That's culture. The definition of culture is way of life. So fair-skinned people had a certain culture and non-fair-skinned people, maybe excluding the Japanese, had a different type of culture. Now, isn't that interesting? I wonder if that's true. Culture along skin-coloured lines. Culture along skin-coloured lines. Not that um, humans are necessarily different. Not that they knew any... They, they weren't to know that. And DNA hadn't even come along by then. They didn't know that. Uh, you know, it's only now that we've invented DNA or that we've discovered DNA and all that and genetics and uh, that we, we know that we're all the same now. But back then they probably didn't. You know, what were they supposed to do? Guess? Uh, and if they guessed and were feeling in a progressive mood and were, were they permitted on the evidence they had to hand, were they permitted um, to declare that all, all human-looking people were all the same? You know, are they, were they allowed to say that in their own minds without wondering whether they were lying to themselves on the evidence they had to hand. It's a very horrible and dangerous thought, but we are so smug now because we know everything, you know, because we've discovered genetics and we know we're all the same now, you know, so we can scoff, you know, we can go back in time and say, ah, oh, Captain Cook, um, we know something you don't know which makes us smarter than you. No, it doesn't. I think Captain Cook was smarter than me even though I smugly know many things that he doesn't know. But I didn't discover those things. I'm just lucky. I was born at a different time, you know. Um, so white Australia policy I see as something like European Australia policy. I, I, I see it as culturalist. I think Europeans thought they were better than the other cultures. And so I think they were culturalist in that respect for reasons previously stated. And, um, and to a certain extent, you know, this is a whole other episode, but I think they got lucky because, you know, they, they worked hard, but they got lucky because um, their geography, Europe's geography, lent itself. Um, and Geoffrey Blaney, the Australian historian, has argued this, and I liked his argument. They got lucky because their geography and the warfare that they were engaged in over the last few hundred years had... Um, given them a technical, technological uh, advantage, 
you know, and all through history, whoever has the technological advantage makes everyone else a slave. That's happened before. It, it was done to the whites once upon a time. It was done to the barbarians, my ancestors, you know, the, um, the Romans and the Greeks and all that, the olive skins. Um, they did it to us, you know, because they got a technological advantage, you know, and that's happened all through history. All right. So European Australia um, policy is a white Australia policy and it's culturalist. But because skin colour and culture go very much together, as far as I can see back at that time, there's a, huge, there's a perfect correlation, you know, a perfect enough correlation. But it was racist as well, in my opinion. You know, um, but I'd have to look up the word racist because, you know, I, I had an Indian friend um, and he, I asked him, you know, I had, actually I knew two people um, and I said, how many Australians do you think are racist, you know? And one of those people who was, you know, a Westerner, um, progressive, said 96, 90, I forget what she said, 96% or something, you know, 93%, I can't remember what she said, 90%, she might have said. And I asked the Indian, who, you know, who was a fairly dark-skinned Indian, you know, the Indians can get racist too, they can really get going with their caste system and their Aryanism and everything. And have you ever looked at the, um, the WAGs, the wives and girlfriends, of the Indian cricket team? My goodness, they're all white. Yeah. Um, it looks like um, uh, none of the Indian cricketers tends to go for the dark-skinned type of Indian. Um, but um, get Google it. It's funny, you know. Right. So European Australia policy and white Australia policy, and they put in a white Australia policy, which I don't think was entirely to do with skin colour. It was to do with culture as well, working conditions and wages and all that, and living conditions. Um, but here's the thing soon as it was put into place by the founding fathers who might have been a little bit more sophisticated than just going along white, you know, white versus coloured skin lines. I'm sure they were onto more than that. The founding fathers, you know, the elite in the society usually have more going on in their heads than the plebs. Um, but as soon as they put the white Australia policy in place, um, the, average, the average pleb, my ancestors, you know, I come from a long line of peasants on all sides. I'm a peasant, a peasant and proud. And, uh, um, and excuse my accent if you know me, I, uh, I'm banging this accent on a little, I like talking like this, uh, but, you know, because I'm talking to myself and I don't talk like this exactly in real life. Yeah, I just talk like, I don't know, I couldn't even say how I talk in real life. But the peasants, you know, they saw this white Australia policy, I think, and they said, I like that, because I'm white. You know, and they didn't think far past their noses, at a bet. You know, and to this day, I think the white Australia policy is a white Australia policy. So this might be a case of um, the founding fathers might have put in a European Australia policy for reasons slightly more sophisticated than just skin colour. But it had the effect of being all about skin colour. Doesn't matter in some ways what the reasoning was. You know, maybe it wasn't even to do with people with dark skin per se, but they were just worried about the yellow skins, Chinese, 
after the gold rush. They didn't like that, the Chinese trying to come and grab some gold. They didn't like that, the Europeans. Um, so they brought in a, a, a non, you know, you could call it a non-yellow Australia policy. It wasn't so much against Africans because Africans just weren't in the picture. Nothing to do with Africans, as far as I can tell. A little bit to do with Africans. You know, because they just didn't want anyone who wasn't European. So to that extent, a little bit to do with Africans, but only by inference. <coughs> Excuse me. In the maternity ward. Um, so, not to do with Africans per se. We didn't have Africans in Australia, really. There's one African at the Mile Street Massacre. He got hung, I think, because he, he was... He was murdering indigenous people at the Mile Street Massacre along with some Europeans um, because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the same culture as the indigenous peoples at the time at the Mile Street Massacre in Australia. He was from Jamaica, I read, and um, he, uh, and he was African-Jamaican, African you know, like, like Bob Marley. And, yeah, he was slaughtering indigenous people because, they, you know, they had nothing to do with him culturally. It's not to do with skin colour. He was, an he was from an agriculture background. Um, and the indigenous people were hunters and gather background. Yeah, so he was, um, yeah, he was more on our side. It's not all about skin colour. It's all about skin colour when it gets to the white Australia policy, though. You have to keep yourself loosey-goosey when I talk. Um... All right, so in summary, you know, and, and this, the, the episode that's coming will probably repeat what I'm saying, but I like coming back to the start of the episode and chatting what I'm about to chat about. Uh, I think it works. A um, little bit more focused. If you thought that wasn't focused, wait till you hear the next bit. And uh, a little bit more focused, you know, you know, because only at the end of an episode do, do I find out what the episode is about, you know, because... It kind of evolves. I don't really know what it's going to be about until I finish. And uh, it ended up, this episode, about Terra Nullius. Um, and, um, and in my book, Terra Nullius wasn't about a declaring Indigenous Australians flora and fauna, but it had that effect. Okay, so in legal terms, you know, maybe the early British which were very different than the early Australians, European Australians of 1901, but the British of 1788, I don't think had such racist ideas towards the Indigenous peoples as the 1901 Australians. I think we got more racist by then. I think Australians are more racist than the British. The Australians of 1901 seem to me to be more racist than the British of 1788. I, I, I feel that the early governors of the colony in 1788, it wasn't Australia then, there was no such thing as Australia then, um, it was New South Wales and it was Port Jackson, um, the colony. Um, those governors, I think, were much more... Um, oh, excuse me. Sorry, I was just talking oh, some notes, fine. yeah. Uh, security guard, because I'm late here. Um, they uh, were, um, excuse me, they were, I think, more um, on the side of 
the indigenous people, trying to look out for them, a lot more than the 1901 mob that was the European Australians, as far as I can tell. I don't get a good feeling about the early Australians, 1901. I do get a much better feeling about the early British. They just wanted to survive. And, uh, you know, they were, I don't feel that they were much more tough on the indigenous people than they were on the convicts. Um, but, you know, that's a whole debate topic and I don't, I'm not into debate. You debate that. I don't debate. Right. So I think that's, that's what I think. You know, the White Australia policy was put in place for, for, for reasons that were slightly more sophisticated than, uh, than something to do with just skin colour. It was to do with culture as well, as far as I can tell, but it's inseparable. But, but once put into place, it really was to do with skin colour in the end and became the poster policy for racism of the time, you know. Uh, white versus black racism was all, the, was, was all the rage then, whether you were in America or in Australia. Um, there was a boxing match, I think it was about 1905, just after... Um, uh, just after uh, Australia came into existence, as defined in the Constitution, and there w it was a very well publicised thing, and I think it was in Melbourne, actually, and, um, and all the Aussies were barracking for the white guy, you know, um, and no one was barracking for the... And I think he might have been an African-American who was over here, and it was a very well-publicised boxing match and everyone was passionate about the boxing match because it was seen as white versus black. Who is going to win? You know, a lot like Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics. Jeez, I might have got that right. I think that's Berlin. Um, and I might not have. Um, you know, and the Nazis, you know, this was a referendum on who was superior, black versus white, and Jesse Owens won. What a pity they couldn't shoot him on the spot right there. Okay, so, um, and you know, there was a boxing match in the very early days of the Australian nation state, um, you know, the nation state, young and free, um, in which a black, and you know, we're talking black and white by now, a black boxer went up against a white boxer. Uh, and it was heavily publicised and absolutely everybody went for the white guy. And, uh, and, and if you're a progressive now, you probably would have gone for the white guy back then too because you've got your 2019 head screwed on. But, you know, if you were back then, with your exact brain matter that you have now, you probably would have gone for the white guy too, I reckon. And if you, won't, if, you, if, that, if you think, no, that's not true, then how come nearly everybody was going for the white guy back then? How come that then? You know, that sort of thinking, you know. Um, and Terra Nullius, the same. So white Australia policy, you know, put in for reasons slightly more sophisticated than just skin colour, but it ended up about skin colour because of the correlation. Terra Nullius... Uh, you know, m most likely a very subtle uh, thing. Um, you know, the Europeans honestly couldn't see that the indigenous people owned the land, couldn't spot it because of their social construction at the time, and because they just weren't hunter-gatherers and just couldn't see it. 
They couldn't see that connection to the land by the indigenous peoples, couldn't see it. And, you know, in all honesty, and it was a total act of honesty um, and greed at the same time, you know, you can be honest and greedy, um, couldn't see that the indigenous people were owning this land and they declared it not owned. Um, so it wasn't really a declaration of, as far as I can tell, a declaration that uh, indigenous people are flora and fauna no, no higher than the kangaroos. Uh, but once in place, terra nullius, it had that effect. It played out, uh, you know, they might as well have declared it, you know, so um, they had actus reus, but they didn't have mens rea. All right then, on with the, let's, let's get into the episode then. I wonder how many minutes that was. You see, I've done a whole episode there. That's 28 minutes, 55 seconds. So I could probably delete all the rest of this. Um, you, you can stop here and go to the next episode because I've pretty much summarised what I'm about to say. I've just restated it again. But I forgot to tell you what my Indian friend said. He lives in Adelaide. Uh, and do you remember I said I asked a couple of people, two people, um... How many racists do you think there are in Australia? I don't know why I even asked that. That was years ago. Um, would have been for some sort of, you know, would have been for some comedic reason, knowing me. Uh, so I don't think I was being deadly serious. But, um, you know, uh, one person who was a young progressive, and she's lovely, you know, fantastic person, really good person. Um, I'm not saying she's not, but she said 90%, I think. Um... 90% racists, you know, European Australians. Uh, and I asked my Indian friend, who was more like, um, he was from Vanarasi, you know. I think it's spelled Banarasi. Is that, is that the one? You know, did that have something to do with Buddha? Now, he described where that was. No, he described, he told me once where that was, Vanarasi. He said, I think that's the heartland of Hinduism. Um, and I think he said, you know, look where Buddha was born. Um, look where Buddha came from, something like that, you know, up in the mountain, you know, at the foot of the mountains, wherever that was. And then he says, just come south from there. And that's Vanarasi, Vanarasi. And he told me, um, I'm going back to Vanarasi to die when I get older. Um, I must be buried in Vanarasi or burned, burned probably. Yeah, I must be burned in Vanarasi, but I, my soul needs to go back to Vanarasi. They're very serious, um, this, you know, uh, they're very connected um, to Vanarasi, those Vanarasians. <laughs> um, but I asked my Hindu friend, he's Hindu, he's Hindu. Um, so what percentage do you, you know, you're an Indian who lives in Australia, you're an, Austra an Australian Indian, um, you're an Indian in Australia. How many Australians do you think are racist? You know, and I think I was, knowing me, I, I don't ask these things for political reasons. It would have been some sort of joke. And um, he said, well, well, it depends how you define racism, doesn't it? I went, oh, that was a good answer. I thought to myself, didn't bother asking for the percentage after that, because that really, I like that.
hey, did you, did you hear me go ping with the microwave earlier when I was making my cup of coffee here in the maternity ward at Box Hill Hospital? Uh, and you could hear me having a sip of my coffee uh, as I was speaking. Uh, I was kind of doing that and I was having a sip in an exaggerated way to give it the coffee, you know, the having a coffee in the maternity ward feel. Um, but when that um, microwave went ping, that reminds me of a very funny story uh, in parks. I've been to parks in the middle of Australia, in the middle of New South Wales. Uh, there's a great big telescope in parks, you know, which brought you the moon landing, unless you believe that the, we've never been to the moon, you know, and it was just a movie. But, you know, the Parkes Telescope brought you the moon landings. The first man on the moon, Neil Armstrong, and the other guy, you know, his name's Buzz Aldrin, but we like to forget who he is because he was only second. Uh, right, snooze you lose. <laughs> and uh, Neil Armstrong, Parkes, the big radio telescope. Now, for a long, long time, I love science. The radio telescope at Parks, up until recently, was detecting something mysterious in the universe. And uh, the scientists came up with all sorts of theories as to what it could be. And, and you know, and this is a credit to the scientists. They saw a, a blip oh, that was being picked up by the radio telescope. No, by the telescope at Parks. Uh, a blip, you know, and a blip on, you know, when the universe sends out blips, it means bursts of radiation. Um, you know, it could be from a star, could be from a, you know, it could be from anything, you know, but you get a, you know, it could be a solar flare, you know, it could be light, could be anything, but you get radiation, you know. Anyway, there was a kind of almost regular burst of radiation appearing on the radio telescope from out of space. And nature doesn't work that way. It was a very definite blip. And it had the scientists in knots. It almost hinted at intelligent life form out there because it couldn't be explained. And it, it, it wasn't regular enough, you know, to quite get a handle on, and the scientists were going nuts. But scientists being scientists, um, and this is what science does. Science is about the study of what you observe in nature. So let's say a, a messiah, you know, a, a preacher man came along and actually did turn water into wine right now, right in front of us on TV, absolutely peer-reviewed. Um, now, that would not be called a miracle by scientists. You know, preachers would call it a miracle, but it's just not a miracle according to science. Uh, it's really something to get your head around and I really have this attitude towards science. You know, I'm kind of a scientist. Um, you know, on paper I'm a scientist, but in life I'm a failed scientist because I went and did something else. Um, but um, science, if it was most definitely recorded that on one occasion water was turned into wine, then that becomes a natural event by definition because it is observed, our senses observe it, and it did happen, all right? 
So we do not call that a miracle if it is actually observed, um, you know, and passes a few tests. All right. Uh, let's say it was let's say it was recorded on video. All right, and um, and a hundred people were watching, including a whole lot of skeptics. And let's have Dick Smith there, you know, and Richard Dawkins. All right. Okay. So, if water gets turned into wine. It is an event in the natural universe and it is a natural event. And then the scientists would get busy trying to explain, you know, coming up with theories to explain that. And that would be absolutely valid science. You know, it wouldn't discredit science itself. Science can't be discredited because science can't be discredited. Scientists can if they're not playing the game properly. But science can't be discredited because science just says, listen, on the available evidence, this is what we think. This is our theories. We've got a range of theories and they are subject to future um, new data coming in. So science itself cannot be discredited. It's got an inbuilt self-crediting mechanism. Okay, and people would come up with theories and, you know, something, you know, akin to dark matter did it, you know. Dark matter sometimes, you know, they'd invent some kind of dark matter or you know, some, um, you know, um, some mechanism um, among quarks and, um, you know, and, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd come up with something called a strange that did that, you know, that is smaller than an, ato an atom. They would call it, there is a, a force in nature called a strange and it happens, it turns water into wine very rarely and uh, only once so far, actually maybe twice, because it was recorded a long time ago, back in the Bible. Um, so maybe, you know, that brings it, that's twice now. You know, we really didn't believe that um, Bible story, but now we've seen it with our own eyes, so that's twice. So um, let's see, that was about 5,000, that was about 3,000 years ago. That No, it wasn't, it was 2,000 years ago that water was turned into wine and now it, in 2019 it's turned into wine again water has been turned into wine again so that's twice so every 2000 years all right the observation is it seems that maybe every 2000 years um, water gets turned into wine um, and we think that is due to a very dark matter force called the strange that's how science works now there was a blip on the radar in parks. And I hope this little story here is distracting you enough from terra nullius and all that sort of thing because um, the episode that's coming up is pretty much a repeat of the previous episode, although with a lot of other little bits and pieces thrown in. You know, so you can really stop listening to this episode whenever you feel like it. You're not really missing much, except for all the little bits and pieces and my chat and the funny little things. And by funny, I don't mean ha-ha funny. I might mean, you know, nuts funny. Um, Anyway, a blip on the radar, on the, on the radio, on the telescope at Parks. And I think it went for years. Google it yourself. I think it went for years and they kept picking up this little signal. And after a number of years and all sorts of wonderful theories, you know, very akin to the idea of a, a strange force, you know, a force called a strange um, turning water into wine, you know, people are coming up with these theories as to what this, you know, could be a new form of, um, could be a, 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 an anti-black hole, 
you know, that gives a burst of um, a burst of energy, just a little tiny burst of energy from far, far away, galaxy far, far away, um, and a very always the same sort of burst, or identical sort of burst every day, and more in the morning, and around about five o'clock, than in the middle of the night. Now that was weird. That had them thinking because galaxies far, far away don't know about the movement of the Earth around the sun. So this was doing their heads in. And finally, someone put two and two together and it might have been the janitor. Do we have janitors in Australia? Or is that an American word? I don't think I've ever come across a janitor. Um, I always imagine them in schools in America, the janitor. Um, I think we have cleaners, yeah. And the cleaner's gonna be in here soon because the security guard, security guard has already been around. So, yeah. oh, sorry. oh, sorry, you're the cleaner, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, no, catch you later. Come on, give me that one. Seriously, the instant I said it, the cleaner came in. That is weird. Come on, give me that one. That is too much. Um, God does exist. All right, that, that's... Sorry, I'm getting that tingly feeling because that was too much. All right, now... Um, and someone put two and two together and... Uh, sorry, I'm a little bit unnerved. And they realised that when people were opening the door in the microwave in the kitchen underneath the radio telescope at Parks, it was letting out a burst of radiation, microwave radiation, which was being picked up by the telescope above. I love that. On with the show. I'm going to be thinking about that cleaner for a fair while now. Kids, imagine you're on an aeroplane and you have a crash landing. And you, you crash land into the water near an island, a deserted island on this occasion. Not like Australia when the British got here, that wasn't deserted. But imagine you land on, right next to a desert island and a deserted island. What's a desert island? All right, and well, one that's got lots of fresh water and food. Okay, and the plane lands in the water and floats for a little bit, and all the all the all the rubber slides pop out, you know, like balloons. And down you slide, and you all get onto the island, uh, and you're all stuck there. Your whole family, so you're not going to miss anybody. You know, yeah, we, we were all, hey, we were all off on our way to a holiday to uh, Greece. Why not? I'd like, I want to go to Greece. And, but we don't make it. 
and we all crash. And, you know, it was a family holiday with everyone we know, all our extended family. And, um, and we have to set up a civilization or a non-civilization. Maybe we'll be become, maybe we'll decide to be hunters and gatherers there. Maybe we'll have no choice. Uh, maybe we will, you know, start making crops somehow. Someone amongst us must know something about that, farming. Oh, I was a farmer for two years, but you know what, I forgot all about it. Um, I was young then. And, um, and, but uh, some of the things we have to think about straight away is what sort of social system are we going to have? What sort of social system are we going to set up? Okay, maybe something egalitarian, you know. Um, who knows, you know. Maybe we will say straight off the top of our heads with no social construction, um, liberty, fraternity, egalite. You know, maybe someone will say those three words, you know. Who knows? Maybe, um, you know, um, oh, look, Grandmum, you know, she's very into indigenous culture. She might propose something like the indigenous people have. And we'll all get connected to the land, you know, that sort of thing. Um, well, um, what sort of system would you have? Uh, what sort of social system? What sort of political system? Now, there's a menu of political systems from which you can choose. And most of those were designed in, um, in the Western world. You know, in terms of what the whole world uses now, most of those were designed around about the time of the French Revolution. Um, and, you know, um, around about that time, not necessarily only in France, but in England as well, you know, um, the Westminster system. We might put in place a Westminster system. Um, or... Uh, Communism, which was also designed, you know, around about that time and thereafter. You know, these are all Western systems um, on the menu because I'm not sure that any other systems are really in play on the planet at the moment in any solid way. Um, you know. Um, oh, yes. Well, you know, there is one. Um, there's Saudi Arabia, which for their constitution... Their constitution is simply the Koran. It's a nice, easy um, constitution. Um, the Koran as your constitution, which is really interesting in a way, because, you know, um, with Australia, we have some inbuilt mechanisms in our constitution. In 21st, you know, in modern Australia, in European Australia, we have a constitution um, which has an inbuilt mechanism where you can review it. You know, but in Saudi, I... If I know anything about the Koran, you can't review it. Okay, so not much room for revolution in, in there. So that's a possibility. That's nice and stable. Um, all right, they're the options. But then if um, there are political systems that have never been invented, so maybe we're going, to, we're going to invent one of those. Maybe we'll invent our own new one. That can be done because it was done in the French Revolution. Okay. Um, maybe... Um, a, a totalitarian system, you know, with an absolute dictator. Maybe you'll go with that. Maybe you'll do that for a while until we get settled. 
But then, you know, as I said, maybe we'll go with something like the Indigenous Peoples of Australia had before we came here, and which some communities, I'm sure, in Australia, as, and I'll have to ask my godson that, but I'm sure they follow Indigenous um, traditions in some communities in Australia still. I hope they do, you know. Um, I really do, not for any moral reason, but just I think that sounds like a diversity, and I like diversity, otherwise I get bored. Okay. Um, so what system would you put in place? And um, it might be dictated a little bit by the geography of the island and whether you are forced to be hunters and gatherers or whether um, the island does lend itself to agriculture. Maybe that will impact a little bit, especially if you stay there for about 500 years or 1,000 years or 65,000 years. Um, the, um, the social, political and economic system might actually uh, end up reflecting the geography of the joint. Okay. Ah, and here's an interesting thing. Are you going to have a concept of ownership of land? Uh, and my thought is, regardless of whatever you're going to put in place, 65,000 years later, whatever concept of connection that may arise between you, your people, and the land, is probably going to be a product, I, and I'm just guessing this, of the geography of the land. And, you know, it probably doesn't matter what you choose, but one way or another, uh, your idea, which won't be just your opinion, it will be fact. Um, the facts relating to your connection to the land will I am betting and I'm not getting these ideas out of my own head I've got these ideas from other people who are a lot smarter than me whatever idea you have with respect to you know your connection to the land now I'm not meaning you specifically but your people whatever connection to the land your people have over the next many thousand years is likely to be a product of the geography and climate of that island. And it won't be a matter of opinion. You know, when you first land there, you'll have your choice, you know. Well, we're going to have ownership. We're going to have this concept of ownership and, you know, we all split the land up and we put fences up and we'll have ownership. But thousands of years on, beyond that, whatever you came up with will have evolved itself away and the connection to the land will probably be a product of the geography of that land. And it won't be a matter of opinion anymore or choice, in my opinion, as far as I can tell. It will be a function of the geography of the land and the way you look at that land and, and interact with it will be in your collective imagination, you know, your people's collective imagination, will be the only way there is to look at that land. There won't be another option. 
you know, at that point in time, you won't be choosing between, oh, we will have a connection to the land that is not to do with ownership. You won't even know what that sort of ownership is. All right? And then one day, another mob will come from another land, which very much, you know, and let's say, all right, let's say um, that you are thrown into a hunter-gatherer sort of, lifestyle by the um, geography of the land and there is no such thing as you know after a few thousand years there is no such thing as that other type of ownership there is only one type of connection to the land not as a matter of opinion not as a matter of this is my belief and you have your own belief just as a matter of this is the only way to think there is no other way to think possible there is no other possible way to think this is the only way you can think, all right? Um, and the only way you can think is that we are at one with the land, you know? We, um, we interact with the land and we come from the land and we go back to the land. And it's timeless, you know, the way we interact with the land. Everything's in a, you know, it's not even, the time isn't even linear. You know, you don't even know about time, you know, you don't even think along these lines. It's not a matter of you choosing to believe one thing or another. There is no other way to believe. But just the sun comes up and the sun goes down and everything is in rhythm and it's violence sometimes and it's beautiful sometimes. Sometimes great fires come along and, you know, destroy whole mobs burnt to a crisp and sometimes they don't. Sometimes... There are good seasons and sometimes there are bad. Sometimes there are lots of food. Sometimes there are lots of kangaroos to eat. And so, well, it might not be kangaroos. It might be, you know, uh, diggity-doos, you know, on this island, you know, completely different island. Um, all right? And there is no other way to think about the land other than you're connected to it. And then another mob comes along one day in a ship and they they cannot comprehend any other way of connecting to the land other than owning it because they've been an agricultural you know the land they from the land from where they come is uh, lent itself to agriculture and over time that made it such that there is only one way to look at the land and that is whether you own it or not and who owns it okay and that second mob who has come to your land you know, long lost cousins, ah, finally we're rescued, but it won't feel like it, you know, because you'll have forgotten about the aeroplane by then, and um, aeroplanes don't exist, you know, there's no such thing as aeroplanes by now, and this other mob comes to your land, and, you know, if, it, if they had damn well come 65,000 years ago, it might have been party time and you might have hugged because they're your second cousins anyway, and you know them by name. But it's sixty-five thousand years have passed, and um, and it's not like that at all. Um, you know, these are aliens coming to your land. Now, those aliens are coming to your land, and they're looking at the land, and they're looking at the way you're interacting with the land, and they can't see that that's any different than the way that, let's say, the kangaroos, uh, well, sorry, the dippity doos, whatever I call them. The, the dippity-doos 
inter uh, interacting with the land. The dippity doos are just wandering about the land. It doesn't seem to be an obvious connection between the dippity doos and the and the land. Uh, you know, they're definitely they're definitely not owning it. And the same goes for these people um, on the land. Uh, you know, from the perspective of these invaders, um, because they're an invasive species, you know, they're coming to another land and, and they look at these other people, these people from this other land who have agriculture and have this concept of ownership in their head. And do you know what? That concept of ownership, concept of ownership that they have in their head, it's not a, a matter of, well, we believe in ownership of land and we know that you um, have some sort of other connection to the land. However, we are going to force our idea of ownership of land onto your, onto you. We are going to, um, you know, our way of thinking is going to dominate your way of thinking. No, they're not thinking like that at all. They're thinking, they, they're not even aware there is another type of um, connection to the land. The only connection to their land they know is ownership. All right, so they're not saying our way of life, our way of looking at the land is going to prevail over yours. They're not saying that. They're looking at you and they're saying there's only, you know, it's a, it's a kind of false monochotomy. <laughs> I made that word up. You know false dichotomies? All right, it's a false sense um, and an absolutely understandable one in my opinion, but, you know, you don't have to go with my opinion. Um that there is only one way to look at land. Oh, no, it is a dichotomy. Um, you either own it or you don't. Okay? You, if you're, you either own it or you don't. All right? And these people come to your land, which is your land by now. You know, you really feel like it's your land because you're really connected. And these people come and they look at you and they say, you don't own this land. Are they wrong in terms of their morals, at least? Now, you know they're greedy, you know, because in they come and just push you off the land and don't give you access to the food that that bit of land offers. So you're pretty clear on the idea they're greedy, but they've told you to move on and move upriver a bit. But have they stolen the land from you? Now, whoever you are listening to this, you might say, yes, you don't know what you're talking about, sporty. Yeah. But um, I'm not here to actually give the answer to that question or even to try and, um, you know, it's not even a leading question. I'm, I'm just, um, this podcast is me just wandering along these lines and... Uh, and I, I slowly get to that point in the following episode, and it is definitely not designed, this episode is definitely not designed to try and push you in one direction or another, or even to draw a conclusion by the end of it. This is seriously something I don't quite fully understand, and I'm, I'm just asking questions of myself to try and get my brain lighting up, which is not easy because I am a Westerner and I'm from that mob which for the last 65,000 years, no, for the last 
couple of thousand years um, have been locked into um, the ownership idea of land um, and I really have forgotten in the metadata in my head the time when I was a hunter and gatherer or anything like that you know which which I was quite a long time ago but I've forgotten so you know that's this podcast is just here to just try and explore this in a way that you can't on social media because I would have been smashed already okay I can't be smashed here because I'm all by myself in my car and you can't get me Everything I've said into this episode so far, I spoke into this episode this evening. And all of that, which is more than an hour, is an introduction into something I said earlier in the day, which was this morning. And that thing which I said earlier in the day which I spoke into this episode earlier today on the way to work as distinct from on the way home all of that that I said this morning is coming up now so we have to rewind rewind you know rewind rewind you know um is American rewind do we say rewind 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 See, I even forget what the Australian accent is anymore. Yeah, because we say defence. And the Americans say defence. Yeah. Um, American culture. It's so pervasive. En route to Box Hill again. That's where I'm working most of the time these days. Half of the time. And the trip to Box Hill from Essendon is good for about half an episode. I tend to take an hour to finish an episode by the look of it. So that must be my natural sort of episode length. Takes me about an hour to get to my point. All right. So what's this episode going to be about? It's going to be about Indigenous Australia, loosely, uh, as always, with other things that I happen to know a little bit about thrown in. And those other things I mentioned are, uh, you know, usually, what do I know uh, something about? Uh, I tend to know something about Roman Greece. I tend to know something about Ethiopia. I know something about maths and physics a little bit and a couple of other things like that. I said in a previous episode, I don't know much about American history, you know. But then I thought to myself, oh, I do know a few things uh, about American history, uh, but uh, I tend to sort of say I don't because so many people know so much about American history, especially Americans. Uh, You know, like, I probably know more about American history than I know about Ethiopian history, but because so few people, in Australia at least, know about Ethiopian history, Relative to them, I know a lot. Whereas, because so many people know so much 
about American history, you know, down to you know, the smallest details, you know, you know, who changed their jocks, you know, in on at 4 p.m. on you know the the second day of the Battle of Little Big Horn or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know what that battle was called and how many days it went for. But you know what I mean. Um, you know, because people know so much about all that stuff, um, relative to them, I know very little. You know, so maybe it's all relative. Uh, now, Indigenous Australia, oh, there's lots of people in Australia that know lots about Indigenous Australia. But then again, there's a lot of people who don't. So relative to them, I know a fair bit. Uh, but American history, you know, I've been to friends' places and everything, and I saw, I saw in one bloke, you know, one bloke I know who's an expert on the American Civil War, and he's got this, I think it was a three-volume set on the American Civil War, and each volume looked like it was 65,700 pages each, you know, um, and, you know, there must be some detail on the Civil War in there. Maybe the names of the, every single person that participated in the American Civil War. Um, whereas, you know, when I'm studying Ethiopia, uh, there was an English man called Richard Pankhurst, who was an honorary Ethiopian. His mother was an honorary Ethiopian and a friend of Haley Selassie and all that sort of stuff. Rastus, you know, Rastafarians. Um, Bob Marley and all that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, his books are kind of little, you know, about the size of a Mills and Boone, oh, a little bit bigger book, you know. And they're the only history books I've ever seen on Ethiopia, and I haven't even read them. Uh, so, you know, there's not... You know, uh, thin on the ground are the histories of Ethiopia. Um, whereas America... Um, there must have been 65 trillion words written on America, you know, and maybe 65,000 written on Ethiopia. So, um, a lot, you know, there you go. Uh, quite a lot written on Indigenous Australia, but I do know about American history a bit, and that was helped along a little, uh, my knowledge of American history recently, because I'm quite resistant to American history uh, constitutionally, because, and I've always been a bit like that, uh, because American, America is so pervasive, American culture, culture, is so pervasive, culture, is so pervasive in the world. Um, I've got a goddaughter, um, and Americans pretty much annoy her, you know, both, you know, what they call, what we call white Americans and African Americans, you know. Uh, we tend not to talk too much about Indigenous Americans. Uh, they just don't come up in our conversations, you know. But my goddaughter is well connected into the African communities. Well, only one Ethiopian uh, community. And only a part of that, the Tigrayan community. And, uh, and the African American community kind of tends to annoy her for the impact their culture is having on Ethiopian culture. And I discussed that in a previous episode, you know. Suddenly, Ethiopians are African-Americans. When, you know, as far as I can tell, Ethiopians haven't got much to do with African-Americans at all. You know? But suddenly, they're all becoming African-Americans, you know. Uh, you know, but then, um, she listens to next to nothing but 
you know I mean you know any anytime she's sending me a um, a video or you know an inspirational speech by someone or you know or someone you know just about everything she sends me um, hey have a listen to this or listen to what this guy is saying and all that sort of stuff um, I would say out of 500 things she sent me 495 have been by African Americans so figure that out you know so this is what I mean by American history is pervasive um, you can even not you know they can even annoy you you know they annoy me too Americans sometimes although they're the best people in the world can't stand them best people in the world can't stand them you know um, yeah whereas I'm crazy about rock and roll um, and rock and roll started in America uh, and um, I'm probably crazier about what you might call the uh, uh, British rock and roll, but you know, the British got rock and roll from America and gave it a British spin. Uh, I like ACDC too. Alright, so America, so pervasive, their culture. Um, and you know, Western culture is pervasive too. If I was from any other culture other than a Western other than Western culture, you know, it's such a powerful culture, Western culture, unbelievable. In that, I include Australian culture. It's just powerful, you know. And I do count Australian culture in that, you know. Um, and I, what I mean by Australian culture, when I say Australian culture, there is I'm referring to the Australia as defined in the Australian Constitution. I'm not talking about Australia, you know, I've mentioned this before, I like repeating myself because by osmosis, you know, if you say say something once, if you say something once, you know, it might be, one might remember it. If you say it twice, um, you've got pretty good, pretty good likelihood of someone remembering it. If you say it three times, it's fact. <laughs> um, and given I'm talking to myself, I'm trying to talk myself into these ideas. Alright, Australian culture is, um, and I'm, what I mean by that is Aussie culture. Now, you know, in general, vernacular, all that sort of stuff. Australian culture, I might be called more talking about European Australian culture. Um, and indigenous culture, I might be talking about indigenous culture. That seems to make sense to me. We've got, you know. And then, um, so I, I think Australian culture, you know, traditional Australian culture, which is thousands and thousands of years old, you know, around, you know, 65,000 years old as well, just like indigenous culture. You know, Australian culture most certainly was fully formed, fully formed the day the first fleet landed in Australia, 1788. A full set of laws drawing on traditions that went back thousands of years, uh, you know, that were a kind of blend of um, ancient, uh, Celtic and Anglo and Celtic uh, culture, uh, you know, blended with Roman and Greco-Roman uh, culture, you know, because England is, you know, has been conquered by the Italians and the Germans and, the, uh, you know, England never been conquered, but it's been conquered by the Italians and the Germans and the French, you know, the Normans, uh, Normans, what? They might have been a bit more Scandinavian. Were they a bit more Danish? Were they a bit more Scandinavian? Something like that. Were they Vikings? You know. But you know what I mean. Uh, but they all spoke French, I think. All right. So the English, you know, the English multiple times conquered. You know, the Danish Essex. You know, where my half of my, you know, 
my wife is half Essex, along with half Spartan, you know, her parents, and the Essex people, you know, and um, her sister looks Danish to me, and my daughter looks Danish to me too. So it's a mixture. But anyway, what I'm saying is that when European, Europeans, uh, when the British, with a few Irish uh, convicts thrown in, landed in Australia, they had a fully formed culture. Now it's evolved since then, you know, the culture has evolved since then, but it wasn't a new country. It was an old, it wasn't a new culture. Suddenly starting afresh with a blank slate, it was an old culture. Yeah, we had a governor, we had a full, you know, full set of laws, full set of uh, cultural practices and um, musical tradition and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, I'm sure there was a piano. Was there a piano on the um, on the first fleet? Maybe. I don't know. You know, these are funny little things. One wonders. You know, when did the first piano landed in land in Australia? When did the first violin? I bet you there was a fiddle somewhere there. There was some Irish um, on the on the ship. Well, probably no fiddles. Those convicts. They're, they're good for nothing. Um, but um, you know. When did the first piano land in Australia? Well, whenever that piano landed, that was a symbol of a very fully fledged... Hey, 1788. 1788. Were there any pianos? I suppose pianos had just been invented. Um, I know Beethoven played piano. <laughs> um, Mozart was on the harpsichord a lot. Uh, but Beethoven, you know, 1800, I think... That might have been just when all that was happening. And, you know, I bet you a lot of people, uh, there were some people on the first fleet, or the second or the third, who came with um, a suitcase full of musical, music, score. Um, all right, so what I'm saying is, European Australians landed with a full, a fully fledged culture. And you hear a lot of people saying now, oh, Australia is only 250 years old, you know. Well, it was, you know, 2,500 years old on day one, so how do you work that out? It was 65,000 years old on day one. It was 65 million years old. You know, back to the monkeys we were on day one. Um, and, I, you know, I reckon that's an extremely strong point. I always push that one. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, we had a, you know, had, what, did we just invent the idea of a governor and a police force and all that sort of thing, you know, and a, an army, you know, um, and all that sort of thing, not a police force. All right. So, um, but American culture, pretty resistant, um, constitutionally, I am, and, um, uh, but recently, you know, but you do pick up things, and I used to, like, get smart, and Hogan's Heroes when I was a kid. They seem, uh, Hogan's Heroes seems just childish to me now if I happen to catch a snippet of an episode on an internet, you know, in the, on the internet. Um, uh, Get Smart's still pretty funny to me. All right, so that's um, Truth, Justice and the American Way. Uh, but more recently, I have uh, given myself an extra layer of comprehension of American history um, 
by listening to a podcast by Mike Duncan called Revolutions, in which he, being an American, uh, went into great detail about the American Revolution. And that was interesting, and that had a huge impact on Australia. You know, if, if Indigenous Australians want to know how it was that they came to be um, impacted by the British, just study the American Revolution, you know, because um, it was uh, the, the American Revolution chopped England off from the Americas to which the English had been sending their convicts and then suddenly they had to send their convicts somewhere else. So you can thank George Washington, um, Indigenous uh, peoples of Australia, for causing the English to come to Australia. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure they hardly even wanted to come to Australia, the English. They weren't casually coming and conquering. Um, they just needed somewhere to send their convicts and um, they were chopped off from sending them to America because they no longer owned America. It was a very bad thing for England. You know, they lost the war. England's lost a lot of wars. England's never lost a war. Said, you know, we will fight them on the beaches. England's lost a lot of wars. The England, the England's collapsed in the face of the Romans and the, the Italians, you know, the Romans and the English collapsed in the face of the Anglo-Saxons when the Romans left. Um, the Germans, the Germans defeated England. The Germans never defeated England, the Germans defeated England. And the English collapsed when William the Conqueror came over and um, he did find um, a crappy bunch of, uh, of Englishmen on a hill in Hastings. And the English people did not know how to fight William the Conqueror because if they had have come down from that hill, he would have slaughtered them as they came down. So they stayed up there. Uh, and William the Conqueror just had breakfast and then went and got them. All right. Um, and they were the Normans. William the Conqueror was a Norman. And, and then all the nobility of England suddenly were speaking French and, didn't, and the ordinary English people didn't even know what they were saying. Uh, and, and the nobility didn't even know how to speak English. And they were in charge. And they were the kings. And all that sort of thing. Alright. Um, so that's that. You know. Um, so, yes, indigenous um, peoples of Australia um, had a lot to... You know, you can thank George Washington for the fact that the English came here. Had George Washington... Uh, not and it wasn't only George Washington um, there were other people helping <laughs> um, had it not been for the American Revolution maybe the English would never have come to Australia and New Zealand and maybe the French would have come instead because they were knocking on the door as well you know, maybe the Russians would have come maybe the Chinese would have come that would have been my bet I think the French might have, you know, but someone would have come, uh, and that's not to excuse what they would have done, and it's not to excuse what the British did when they came, it's just to say what was likely, to, what was going to happen, it was most certainly going to, Alexander might have come in 2300 BC, 
this is not to excuse what Alexander would have done. That wouldn't have been pretty. All right. So, what am I talking about? Ah, yes. So, um, um, well, um, I, I guess I'm just saying that I know I do know about a few other little things. So I sprinkle these episodes with a bit of that, and I, you know, that all seemed like a, a ramble and uh, that I was talking about nothing. But there's probably a few things I said in there, kids. Um, I've got no idea how these podcasts are going to come across at all, but I do feel like I'm I'm sprinkling little nuggets of you know information that are randomly in my head somewhere, you know, which might be interesting to to you kids or other people who randomly have wandered into this podcast and who are listening. Um, no idea. And, uh, and, and and if you're an Indigenous person uh, who has wandered into this podcast, and you're probably thinking, oh, here's another Westerner talking about Indigenous culture. But I've got a really good reason. There's a really good reason for that. And I can explain myself. It's, um, it's this. It's because I'm a Westerner. Yeah. Um, if you want an Indigenous perspective, make a podcast yourself. Or don't. Uh, but you know, what else? Am I, what other perspective am I going to give? Uh, I could be like my podcasting friend and give an indigenous perspective. But first, I would have to research for seven hundred years, and and then do a podcast. But I haven't got seven hundred years, so I'll just give you a Westerner's perspective. And as to something that's better than the perspective I've got now. Well, I can only provide that after I finish this podcast. You know, because the point of this podcast is for me to find out about Indigenous culture. It's not about me trying to tell you what I think I want you to know about Indigenous culture. That's the way a lot of Westerners talk. They say, I'll tell you about Indigenous culture. Well, that's not me. Um, I'm here to learn about Indigenous culture for myself very, very slowly. Um, sometimes doing it slowly is better. Alright, now, um, oh, Paul Keating, I'm going to do you slowly. <laughs> he said to, uh, he said to, uh, John Hewson. I almost forgot John Hewson's name there. How quickly we forget when someone is irrelevant. Alright. So, let's continue with, and if you want my in- indigenous perspective catch me at a party in about two years after i've finished these podcasts and i'll have a much better indigenous perspective from an indigenous perspective you know but not yet all right here we go now what shall i talk about um and um well do you know what something just popped into my head terra nullius yeah that is something that's a that's a a a couple of words that um even somebody who knows not about much about indigenous culture knows that phrase. Often we don't know what it means. You know, what does it mean? It's Latin. Land not owned. You know, I think that's what it means. Land nullius. Land nothing. You know, land nobody. Nobody owns this land. Um, now some people put it about, and I actually think they're wrong, as far as I know. Now I'm not a lawyer. My wife's a lawyer, but I'm not a lawyer. But I think it's a legal term from everything I've heard. And um, 
uh, some people get about, you know, my children's teachers, perhaps, you know, and say, it was a declaration, you know, terra nullius was a declaration that indigenous people were flora and fauna, uh, more fauna, okay? So I do hear people saying that. It was, a, it was a way of saying that indigenous people were fauna, you know? But from my comprehension of the way British law works and all that sort of thing, I think it was a legal term. I, I think it may have had the effect of people treating um, indigenous, you know, the law might have had the, you know, to an indigenous person, it might have felt like uh, he or she or it, you know, because um, we do gendering now, um, so people can be an it uh, or a they, you know, he or she or they are, uh, plural singular, don't worry about it, he, she or they uh, fauna, you know, it might have had that feeling, but the idea of terra nullius was roughly, I think legally it goes like this, Captain Cook uh, uh, came here and to his eye, the indigenous people were not behaving in any way that suggested that they owned the land upon which they were walking. Was he wrong to think that? Well, probably not, I say, because you, whoever you are, if you're not indigenous, you would have thought that too, back in 1770. You're very smart in 2019, I know that, but that doesn't mean you're essentially smart. You are most likely a dummy like me and Captain Cook, and Captain Cook and I, and me. Alright? So, um, you're not a genius just because you happen to be born in 2019, unless you are a genius, okay? Oh, yes, I am a genius. Oh, yes, well, we're all geniuses. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, back in 1770, you might have... And I discussed this in a previous episode. Why would you have thought that? Why would I have thought that? I wouldn't have thought that. Well, maybe you wouldn't have, but I think you would have. Um, because... Our entire mindset, as my daughter said in a previous episode, our entire social construction, our entire post-construction uh, structuralism, um, was such that we could not comprehend a hunter-gatherer-style connection to land. We just couldn't see it. You know, I, I think that's a pretty firm idea that has slowly dawned on us over the last 250 years. That when, you know, back in 1770 and then in 1788, we could not even see it. It was a blind spot. Um, some people have a blind spot um, and um, in their eyes. And they're looking at something and, you know, uh, you can step one step to the left and they can't even see you because you've, you've stepped into their blind spot, okay? Um, we had a blind spot. Now, and that was because, uh, one, some professor argued to me once, <coughs> that uh, we for too long had been part of an agriculture-based society and uh, for us 
um, you, we uh, saw the land as something that we had to dominate and exploit. Okay, and that was even in our Bible, you know, but it was in our culture. The Bible only arises from the fact that we switched from hunter-gatherer, or not, to we, you know, those, uh, those Semites um, switched from hunter-gatherer style communities into uh, agriculture-based, you know, civilizations, all right? My, my ancestors were still hunter-gatherers at that point in time, I'm sure. Uh, but the point is, when you switch from hunter-gatherer to agriculture-based societies, you may be, by the way, you might be um, giving yourself a lobotomy, a cultural lobotomy when you do that. That doesn't mean you're going forward. You might be going backwards. That is um, uh, very strong on that point too. You know, you may, uh, that may be a retrograde, retrograde step uh, to, um, you lose something. Whenever you change, you lose something. You may gain something, but you may lose something, you know. So, you know, a lot of people get around Australia now and say, you know, we should have open borders and just every culture in the world flood in will be a great big beautiful melting pot and we will be all the richer for it you know but um that's a dirty trick to say that that you know to suggest that it's all win and no lose you know because every time there's a change every time there's a revolution every time there's an evolution you lose something as well um when we when we came down out of the trees and started walking around, um, you know, us monkeys, we monkeys, we lost something. We lost our ability to swing so well between the trees. We lost that. We used to be great at that, you know, swing, swing, swing like Tarzan, you know. But um, when we started walking around, we weren't as good at swinging around the trees anymore. So you lose something. So if Aussie culture continues to be um, uh, killed off, which I think it is being killed off at the moment, it didn't last very long, only a couple of hundred years, uh, maybe even only a hundred years by the time the British influence sort of wore off and Aussie culture came, came aboard, you know, maybe we've only been Aussies for about 50 years. And, you know, it'll be one of the briefest cultures in history. You know, by, by Aussie in, in, in this instant, I'm saying, you know, g'day mate, Aussie, that type of Aussie. Um, flash in the pan, that was. Um, and it'll be gone before you knew it, so, you know, just relax, indigenous people. The Aussies might be gone soon, uh, but then so might be the indigenous culture, so. All right, um, so, um, um, what was I talking about? Don't know. Sometimes I forget. Um, I'm nearly in Box Hill now. And Doncaster Road, I'm going past. Uh, so, um, what was I? Oh, I was talking about Terra Nullius. I remember now. Okay, so, Terra Nullius, um, the British people 
that came to Australia, not as a matter of opinion um, or as a matter of um, being bad people, but yes, probably as a matter of being greedy, um, uh, they uh, they just claimed that you know that as far as they could see, the land was not owned by anybody. And do you know what? I actually think it wasn't in terms of the British idea of ownership. You know, you might say the um, indigenous people did own the land. Do you know what? It all gets back to the definition of words again. Under, all, under the idea of British ownership, the indigenous people did not own the land. Now, of course, I think they did own the land now, in 2019, in a different way. But in terms of British law, but British you know, law arises from culture. And law arises from everything you know, you know. And as far as the British, British law was concerned, as far as British fact was concerned, it was an absolute fact that the indigenous people did not own the land, according to British law. You know, it's a little bit like the way when the Greeks colonised, uh, you know, around the Mediterranean, you know, in ancient times, before the Romans, you know, um, came through and took the lot. But there was a time when the British were, oh, sorry, the uh, Greeks were colonising all around the Mediterranean, then up towards, you know, modern-day Istanbul, not Constantinople, it's Istanbul, you know, um, Byzantium. Um, and the Greeks uh, had no notion that a non-Greek could own land. I think that was roughly it, you know, because non-Greeks weren't human, you know, non-Hellenes. They weren't human, you know, they were human, but they weren't the same sort of human. Look, there was a law and um, an idea in the heads of, you know, Athenians and so on and Hellenic peoples that, you know, Hellenic people could own land. You know, that was part of the rules of citizenship of um, Greece, you know, uh, the Hellenic world, you know, the city-state of the, the polis, the polis of that we call Athens or um, Sparta or whatever, or Corinth or whatever, um, Macedonia, um, that non-Greek, so non-Greeks could not own land. So they, the Greeks would go across to, you know, what is Gaul, modern day France, um, to, you know, and Gaul, and I think that's named after the word gallo for milk, you know, the whiteies. The Greeks called them whiteies. The Greeks called everyone by colour. No, they didn't, but they called a lot of people by colour. They said they were barbarians because they sounded like sheep. Barbar, you know, the way they spoke. That's my ancestors, they called that. You know, sheep. Bar, bar, bar. You know, that's what their language sounds like. Barbarians. Barbarians. And, but then there were the Gauls. Um, the gallo, the white, the milky skins, the white skins, the whiteies, because the Greeks were less white than those guys. And then there are the Ethiopians, which are the dark skins. Um, you know, this is what you'd call olive Greek policy. You know, um, and uh, you know, and some of those sort of in between olivey brown people. You know, I was reading Sinbad, the sailor, to my son, 
and he went to a land, you know, there was a great Persian king, um, and, uh, and the Persian king, you know, he's maybe a little bit brown, and he had a nice matching set of white slaves and black slaves, you know, so that was, that was, uh, brown Persia policy, yeah. um, and he, and he lined up all the white slaves to the left and the black slaves to the right. Um, and they brought him a great feast, they did. And they welcomed Sinbad to the palace. Yeah. Uh, that's the way it goes. Now, um, so the Greeks, you know, had a kind of idea of terra nullius, I think. Um, don't know if they called it that because they didn't speak Latin. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to speak Latin. They spoke something better, Greek. And the Latins, you know, they, they took words from the Greeks, but the Greeks didn't take words from the Latins, by and large. Because the Greeks, the Greeks, uh, the Greek language is uh, internally consistent and a wonder and an art form and all that sort of stuff. And Latin is a bastardization, borrowed words and all that sort of stuff, just like English, you know. Um, but Greek, like Sanskrit is a wonderful art form. Greek is a wonderful art form. Are uh, the indigenous languages a wonderful art form? My bet is yes, because I think these languages that are wonderful art forms are ones that are internally consistent in as much as they don't borrow, um, but they develop um, internally. You know, like um, the Greeks, if they needed a new word, they would invent it. You know, like if they if they if they caught an idea from somewhere else. They would, in, they would invent a word that made sense in Greek. Whereas the English, if we hear another word like kimono, you know, we say kimono, um, we just borrow it, you know. So half, half the words in English are French. Yeah, but then French is sort of Latin, you know, it's vulgar Latin. Um, but then Latin, you know, a lot of their words were borrowed from the Greek and that sort of thing, yeah, it goes back and back and back. Yeah, but indigenous languages, I, you know, you'd have to say they were pretty pure, I would think. You know, they borrowed from each other. Gee, it would be amazing, you know. I, I, to study indigenous languages, um, they would be a wonder, you know. Uh, um, probably an extremely important thing. Oh, just a second. Um, car park. Um, indigenous language would have to be one of the wonders of the world in the way the Greek is one of the wonders of the world because it must be internally consistent, I would think, and an art form unto itself. Um, and like Sanskrit, I bet you that in, you know, um, indigenous culture is on that level, mainly because it hasn't been bastardized, well, before we got here anyway, it wasn't bastardized and corrupted. It was something, something um, pristine in a way, um, with swear words, but that doesn't matter, that doesn't stop it being pristine. Um, in the same way that the flora and fauna of Australia was pristine. Uh, in other words, um, not damaged by invasive species. The English language coming to Australia was an invasive species, you know, and um, the English themselves were an invasive species, uh, and a horror, you know, 
the English coming to Australia, just the idea of that to me, when I'm thinking from an indigenous perspective as I am right now, is an absolute horror. You know, it's such a, you know, it's like a video of a cat up in the Dandenongs, you know, and we've got a mountain range called the Dandenongs, where we've got lyrebirds there, and lyrebirds are just sitting there defenseless against cats. Lyrebirds are an amazing bird. Um, they're wonderful mimics. They can mimic sounds, you know, amazing. And, um, you know, imagine, and it happens all the time, a lyrebird just sitting there, and it's got no evolved defense against predators from Africa such as cats and the lyrebird is just sitting there and a cat comes stalking up to it and the lyrebird doesn't really in its evolutionary memory even know what that thing is and just sort of sits, sits there and doesn't run just stares at it you know and goes you know probably goes meow you know because it heard the cat go meow and lyrebirds can mimic sounds and the lyrebird just sits there and the cat just walks up to it and chomp you know, and if you're a birdie, you know that would that be that must be a kick in the guts when you every every time you think about that. Well, I think that right at the moment, whenever I think of the English language coming in to damage the indigenous language, um, you know, I think that's a horror. Just like it's a horror to think about a cat just chomping the head off a lyre bird just like that just walked up to it the cat you know just really it suddenly realized it didn't even have to stalk it i'll just walk up to this bird okay and um i hear that oh let's make up a number four million birds native species are killed by cats every year i don't know what the figure is doesn't matter if i make up numbers um and that's a horror. Um, and similarly, when uh, non-British people come, post the British having come originally, that's a horror too. For the indigenous culture, at least, surely it is, is it? And um, you know, and, and, and this is where it's hard to be a good person. You know, because, um, you know, Muslims are all in the news these days because they're suddenly all bad since uh, September 11. Oh, look, for some of you people, they were bad before then, you know. For some of you people, they were uh, good before then. But let's just use Muslims because that's, a, you know, they're an easy target at the moment since 9-11. Um, so, uh, Muslims, um, in, you know, if I um, continue with the idea that um, anything coming into Australia to wreck indigenous to impact upon indigenous culture is culture is an invasive species much like cane toads coming into Australia are an invasive species or you know some sort of flora um, that is wiping out natural flowers you know flower natural plants is an invasive species species you know when the Muslims come to Australia, that's a horror. Now, if you just grab what I said there and put that on the internet, everyone's going to call me a redneck and a bad person 
and this is where nuance comes into it because um, if you're if you're a progressive for example and you think I just said a bad thing did you think I said a bad thing when I said the British were a horror and then it's worth thinking about somehow you'll make me out to be a bad person I'm sure because social media um, are geniuses at that you know you can make sense and they'll un they'll they'll make you sound something you're not anyway and you um, and and you 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 will be misunderstood you know, by low-level thinkers or different people who think differently maybe not low level maybe they're above me in some way and they think in some more sophisticated way than I think which happens to be a way I don't want to think all right um, so that's that you know the indigenous language I'm, I'm without even knowing it I'm impressed by it because I just know it had to evolve in isolation relative pristine isolation and I'm impressed by that okay um, all right that was very chatty all of that but boy I think there's some stuff in that that could prompt that could light up your brain and get you thinking one way or the other uh, and um, so that's that okay now uh, what was I talking about terra nullius so the British made a logical to them a logical assessment that's that um, no rational person could disagree with at the time that the indigenous people didn't own the land um, and they claimed the land and said we own it because no one else owns it all right according to their culture um, now in the act of doing that they did push um, indigenous peoples off the the local, you know, they established a thing called Port Phillip. I'm just going around and around in the car park at the moment because Box Hill Hospital, they just let as many cars into the car park as they want, um, even when it's full. You know, they don't, you know, I write software, I should write a piece of software for them uh, that um, such that the boom gate um, flashes red when the car park's full. <laughs> All right. <coughs> so we've got about six cars here just wandering around. All right. So, Terra Nullius. Um, I don't think it was a declaration that Indigenous people were flora and fauna, but I think it kind of had that effect. Um, and, um, and, well, I said I was going to talk about Terra Nullius, but that's about it, you know. Um... Yeah, and I said the Greeks, you know, they, they had a bit of an idea of terra nullius too. And they used to go around the Mediterranean, the Greeks, and just, you know, say, we own this because, you know, you Gallic um, barbarians, you Gallic primitives, um, you do not know what a polis is, you know, which is a, a Greek city. Um, you do not, you are not civilised. You can't own something because ownership means you know what a polis is. Do you know what a polis is? And they said, no, we don't even speak Greek. And they said, all right, well, then you don't own the land. It works like that. Um, all right, and that's what terra, that's how terra nullius works, I believe. Um, but there's greed involved because we're humans. And when we um, established 
Port Phillip. Um, Port Phillip? I'm in Melbourne, that's why I said that. Uh, Port Jackson. Um, uh, Port Jackson. Uh, it was a small colony, um, a penal colony. And I imagine, and I don't even think this is, um, you know, I, I, I can understand, I can imagine the early colonists thinking this. They thought, well, the indigenous people don't appear, you know, well, they wouldn't have even thought about it. They said, there's plenty more land. The indigenous people can go upstream a little bit and we just need this little bit, you know. it's only We only need 200 square kilometres. We only need 50 square kilometres. We only need four square kilometres. Um, are we stealing Australia? Well, they weren't even calling it Australia by then, were they? They were just setting up a penal colony. Um, yeah, they, they called the whole lot New South Wales, maybe? Doesn't matter. It's all very rubbery. But the point is, right at that moment, they were establishing a penal colony, you know, and there was a kind of boundary to that. And, um, and did they feel like they were stealing land off the indigenous people? Were they even stealing land off the indigenous people in their minds? You know, actus reus, what is it in law? I hear my wife talking, mens rea, actus rea. Mens rea, you know, um, in their minds were they doing a wrong thing? Um, well, you know, in our law, um, you have to do the wrong thing and know that you're doing the wrong thing. Yeah, that's our law. I don't know what indigenous law is. Uh, but um, the British did the wrong thing, but did they know they were doing the wrong thing? Well, they knew they were pushing people off land and um, the indigenous people were probably responding but they you know I, I would lay odds that they thought what a, you know that, that the um, indigenous people were being a bit unreasonable because there was so much other land you know they said come on just move upstream a little bit we just need a little bit you know rack off you know bang bang go away you know um, and all that sort of thing and they probably wouldn't have thought it was stealing land they, they, uh, because the British owned that land now, because they just said they did, you know. Uh, you have to be back there. It's very hard as someone in the 21st century to not be anachronistic in the way you even think about these things. Um, tr um, you know, if I was listening to this and I was a progressive, I'd be smashing me in my, in my mind. I'd be saying, you bastard, you bastard, you bastard. You don't understand. You don't understand. But, you know, in, in response to that... I would say, no, well, take yourself out of your 21st mind, 20th century mindset and put yourself back in 1788. Are you sure you understand? Yeah. And you probably do because you're probably a history student at La Trobe University. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's, hang on, we might be almost finished because you only get to do an hour on these things. Oh, 48 minutes, I've got a little bit more time. Um, so I think that's roughly the way Terra Nullius works. And, and then, then um, the colony, you know, they sent another ship and they needed the colony to expand. Uh, and so they expanded the boundary and, um, and then it expanded a little bit more because they needed to grow some more crops. Um, but still, Australia's a big place. Move upstream, you know, indigenous people. Move upstream, you know. And it worked like that. And eventually, Europeans overran the entire continent, like a like a bunch of 
uh, cane toads, an invasive species we were. And then we British, I'll say we were British. You know I am British. Um, uh, all my ancestors, even though most of my ancestors were Irish, I'm, we've sort of discovered that. Um, they were, you know, because all my ancestors were in Australia by 1890, which was a long time ago in the scheme of 65,000 years, you know, 1890 was so long ago, you know, all my ancestors landed, and we already, we've got this all calculated between 1841 and 1890, the whole lot of them. Um, Ireland was still owned by the British, so that makes me a British citizen, you know, until they turned me into an Australian citizen in 1901. Um, with this brand new fledgling nation, starting from scratch with a blank slate, but it really was just another version of, you know, it was an offshoot of England. Um, yeah. Um, ancient culture we were. On day one, 1901, Australia was a blank slate, young and free, but it was an ancient culture. Uh, because, you know, read the Constitution, how could you come up with all that um, if you're starting afresh? You know, you're not starting afresh. It's too, it's too, um, it's too sophisticated. The Australian Constitution to be a starting from scratch, blank slate. You know, sometimes people, oh, idea. Sometimes people say, if you landed on an island and you, you know, um, and they do this to test your politics. You know, what is the first thing you would do? You know, you. Um, you're in an aeroplane and the aeroplane crash lands and you know there's a hundred survivors and you all land on a desert island um you have to start from scratch tell me tell me the political system you're going to set up and the social system and the economic system and all that sort of stuff and what are the laws and people say oh wow starting from scratch with the desert island but you're not you're not at all you know you will be you will be just continuing what you were doing before and probably trying to make, you know, there's a menu of political options and quite a few of them and most of them invented during the French Revolution from which you would probably select one or maybe you would do a blend, you know, like modern Australia is a capitalist Western society with socialist elements. Uh, we we're capitalist socialist society, I think. Um, we have capitalism, you know, and that doesn't need to be explained. But we do overlay a number of socialist, you know, we, we section off part of our culture and make that socialist. So we are socialist, you know, like we've got um, Medicare, um, you know, uh, free health for all, all people, all citizens. Free health for all citizens. You have to be part of the club. Um, and that's a socialist idea. You know, it's a socialist component of our um, our society. And, you know, um, and free education is too. You know, health and education, health and education. We are socialists when it comes to health and education. And each time we vote between what we call Labour and the Coalition... We're not voting, you know. Some people say Labour are socialists, and um, and the coalition, uh, they're conservative. They're the coalition are liberal, conservative, capitalists, you know. But it's not like that. We're all 
both parties are essentially the same. They're both capitalist with socialist um, components, um, but it's a question of, um, you know, Labor is 12% socialist and the coalition is 11% socialist. So what we're voting for really is do we want to be 88% capitalist and 12% socialist or, or do we want to be 89% capitalist and 11% socialist? You know, that sort of idea. That's the way it works, I think. All right. Um, okay. And it's a bit more complex than that. You know, we're a bit liberal, we're a bit conservative. So if you're landing on a desert island, which is roughly what, you know, um, the first fleet did when it got to Australia, it's, it's that fun game that people play, um, you know, when they say, just imagine you're going to land on a desert island, you know, and you're the king. What's the first thing you do, you know? Um, my goddaughter sent that to me um, on a text message. She had got that from the internet. Imagine you own and run a brand new country from scratch. What would you do? And I said, well, she said, the first thing I would do is ban um, this business of um, discriminating according to colour. I would make skin colour irrelevant, she said. And um, and I, my offering was, well, I would um, I would make it illegal for someone to own a country and have uh, a man run it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd take myself out of a job and let the people go for it. Yeah, so it depends whether you want to, whether you're into totalitarianism or not, you know. Um, and um, and uh, that, that is one option, to go with totalitarianism and ban, um, just ban discrimination by colour. Or, you know, and that's kind of neat. Totalitarian governments are often neat. Um, or you can go with my suggestion and... Um, and say, do you know what? I'm going to live with a bit of racism just so that we don't have a dictator. Choose your poison. You know, that is the sort of thinking I'd be going, my goodness, you know, I have an opportunity here because I own all of Australia and also I am an absolute dictator. I can actually stamp out in real terms discrimination according to race. Will I hold on to that um, and make, and I can actually get rid of racism right now because I'm an absolute dictator and my police force will hang anyone who shows the slightest hint of racism? Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So, you, you know, one does have the opportunity to carry out the ideal of racism stops with me, you have the power, but then someone like me would give up that power and make it messy and allow racism to flourish again only because um, even though I am quite sure that I'm a wonderful person and throughout my entire life as an absolute dictator, I would um, do the right thing um, and be a good and benevolent dictator. Sure as eggs, the minute I die, the next person 
might use that absolute power for something much more nefarious, you know. Um, gee, what a choice. So, if you had an opportunity to stamp out racism today, in the way I just said, and that is not a silly hypothetical there, by the way, because a lot of people um, would, even in modern Australia, um, force, you know, in a totalitarian way, and the people themselves can be totalitarian in that way, I won't get into all of that, you know, but the, the you know, like, um, yeah, you know, I, you might even get what I'm saying here. It can be a totalitarian regime just in the way you carry all this stuff out. And the question is, would you be willing to keep it messy, which is what Australia do, is doing at the moment, and allow an environment where racism does flourish a little bit and um, just so that you don't have these totalitarian type things happening you know and the mob can be totalitarian too and the mob on social media can be totalitarian too and they can want all the right things and they can demand that these things shall be forced they can demand that these things shall be forced and um, and all that seems great but what about the next mob who has different values in 50 years from now you know, after you, the progressive and compassionate and good mob, has made all these rules that totalitarianism is fine, what's going to happen to you all? And what's going to happen to the indigenous people and, and homosexuals and all sorts of things if 50 years from now, the mob thinks something differently? And we start um, slaughtering homosexuals again. Okay, um, it's dangerous, um, so choose your poison. Would you stamp out racism right now if you had the power? Or would you give up that power? podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.